Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, we proudly bring to you Mormonism Live! Shut up and sit down. Guten Abend, mein lieber Freund. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thank hey, you. I thought hey, I would dress hey. nice for the occasion, and now what? Hey, what? you, your eyes, keep them up. I can, I can see you checking me out. Stop it. <laughs> your eyes checking you out? Oh, my, my gosh. Here I'm trying to be professional, and I was not anticipating what you would be wearing tonight, Mr. Re- or Mr. Real. Yeah, Mr. Real. I went back and looked at our Christmas episode last year, and you were wearing a Christmas scarf. I think maybe the same one you've got tonight. And I wasn't wearing anything festive. And so I went into my closet, and this is what I found. I found a a shirt that has a scantily clad female's body on it, but with Christmas stuff on it. And I don't know if this was my wife's or mine from a party years ago or what, but I think you already uh, said you went into your closet. Well, yeah, but we share the closet. We have clothes. Oh. We both have clothes together, and we have like uh, one little dresser and a couple closets in our bedroom, and then one big closet in our office that we share. Yes. Now you're so, changing your story. Go ahead. Well, okay. So here I am. <laughs> here I am, all scantily clad for our Christmas special. It is Mormonism Live, Radio Free Mormon. Grateful to have the chance to sit down with you again. Uh, this is like episode number fifty-five at this point. I feel 55. like I feel it's like we've we've become a thing. This is definitely going to keep going. 55. It's a podcast we can live with. Yeah. Thought we'd talk. I'll, I'll put my, uh, just, I wanted to do that for the beginning, but I'll give myself a little more. Uh, oh man. More of a headshot. Yeah. An earthquake yeah. in St. George. By the way, oh. I don't know if you can appreciate this tie sufficiently from where you are. So let me just uh, go ahead and show you the, the festivity of it. Oh you my see that goodness. from there? It looks like maybe, uh, is that a, the Empire State uh, Building or the Temple? It is. And that's uh, Spider-Man, Spider-Man webbing on Hulk and bringing presents to all the good boys and girls. Yeah, 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 yeah. That there, yeah. There's probably about as much evidence for Spider-Man as there is for uh, good old Saint Nicholas. Well, I don't know. Maybe. I mean, there's been a lot of movies. There's one that's been recently released. I understand, but I haven't made it to the theaters to see it yet. Yeah, my son went and saw it. Said it was great. I have not. We're going to go see it. I think next Tuesday. Um, for the folks who are listening live, if you would click either the like button and or the subscribe button, uh, well, we'd love do and not or. Yeah, yeah. People get to pick and choose. I'm a big fan of agency. All right, I'm not. Do it both. <laughs> I'm controlling you with powers of my mind. <laughs> click like and subscribe, please. Perfect. Love it. Um, tonight we were going to talk about the historical Jesus. Merry Christmas to him. And uh, I thought I'd give a little bit of a backdrop of just the New Testament, maybe in general, and then you can jump in and you can uh, share what your thoughts are, and then we'll jump into the specifics of the nativity scene. Yes, we'll have a lot of fun. By the way, it's the 22nd of December. It's the evening. This is officially Smithmas Eve. This is officially Smithmas Eve. Tomorrow is the the celebrated holy birthday of our founder and prophet, Joseph Smith, Jr., Yes, absolutely. 1805, Sharon, 
Vermont. Windsor, Vermont. Yeah. yeah, Sharon, Vermont. Yeah, yeah. I think it's Windsor County or something. I don't know. Every place they got tired of that family, they sent them somewhere else, didn't they? Well, they moved around <laughs> quite a bit, but so did I when I was a kid. So I can't point fingers. <laughs> okay. We won't hold it against you. All right. So New Testament. Um, let me start off with talking a little bit about how we framed it as believing Mormons. And, and you correct me if I say something that doesn't really represent how you experienced uh, the New Testament, because sometimes our experiences are different. What I grew up with was a common story. The church in its correlated curriculum chooses the scriptures in a very intentional fashion to keep you understanding the story a certain way. And uh, I think all of Christianity to some extent does that. Mormonism isn't the only guilty party. But what I grew up believing in Mormonism, I say grow up, but I joined the church at 17 and essentially believed until my late 20s, early 30s. And, um, you know, you've got the four Gospels. You've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. All four of those were personal witnesses to the life of Jesus Christ. Mm. And after he died, they those four men thought it would be very important. And those authors are literally Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Right. And those Where else four, would they be? It's right, right there on the titles and on the top of every freaking page. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have any other choice. And uh, – those four Gospels were told to us in that order, Matthew first, Mark second, Luke third, John fourth. Yes. And not that we ever got into dating them in terms of the years that they were written, but that's kind of no. how we understood it. But they're a fun date. They, they are. And uh, these four Gospels, they uh, collaborate and back each other up very well, correct? They Absolutely. They substantiate each other. Four witnesses. In the yep. mouth, if, if, if in the mouths of two or three witnesses, yeah. everything shall be established. What are you going to say about four? Yeah. And when the Christmas story is told specifically, uh, that story is very, it, it, you know, it's, it absolutely happened a certain way. And those four accounts testify to that. Um, and uh, those four gospels, because they were the witnesses and they came first and then Paul and his epistles and stuff came later on. And uh, because those four are the four witnesses, they all, you know, they all knew Jesus personally. They all wrote down his history uh, we can trust that this story is as we were told it was. Yes, with the possible exception of Luke, who does make it clear in his introduction that he's actually compiling reports that were made by others in order to give us an accurate account. Yeah, so he's a little like a philastrious hurlbutt himself. Yeah, I think he was like an, a missionary companion to Paul at one point or something. There you go. Now, let's get into the reality of it. The reality of it is that Mark is believed to have been written about 66 to 70 AD. So we're talking essentially three generations after Jesus, if we're talking what? about somebody in their, into their 20s. Why did you start with Mark? Because Matthew comes first in my New Testament. Yeah, it's because Mark is the earliest written account that we have. And we know he's the earliest because Matthew and Luke are both utilizing his book in order to write their own. So Mark goes first. He is writing somewhere around 66 to 70 AD. That's what most scholars agree on. And it is by far, it's an overwhelming majority of scholars who agree on that. Um, Matthew and Wait Luke, a second. Mark, that's, Mark, if Mark's the earliest, that's over 30 years after Jesus would have died. It is. And it's almost certain and guaranteed that none of these four men knew Jesus personally. They're all just writing a story about him. What's also interesting about Mark, because he's the first account, we were talking about this earlier this morning. Mark ends, the uh, book of Mark goes to, I don't know what verse it goes to, verse 22 or something like that. It's but, got 16 chapters in it, I think. Yep. 
I'm going from memory. By the way, they may not have known Jesus personally, but then again, they've been instructed not to share their most spiritual experiences. <laughs> well, they they tell you a lot of stuff, probably told you too much in those. So I'm not so sure they got their second anointings. Uh, but the actual book of Mark, when it was originally written, it ends in chapter 16, the last chapter, but it ends before the last verse that we have in today's scriptural canon. It ends in verse eight, and it ends with the women essentially being afraid because the tomb is empty. And then the story just shuts off right there. And then somebody else later on uh, finishes writing the the last, whatever, 10 verses, 15 verses in the. Yeah, it goes to 20 in 20. my New Testament. So from yep. eight to 20, from nine to 20. Another 12. Yes. The earliest manuscripts that we have of Mark have the short ending. Yep. And then after Mark, there is a gospel that we don't have. But again, the far and wide majority of scholars agree that there had to have been another book that Matthew and Luke had access to. And we call that the Q gospel. And it would have had a lot of the sayings of Jesus. And the reason we know this is because we know from the accounts that Matthew and Luke don't know each other, that they're writing separate, but that they're also sharing um, sayings in both of their accounts, there's overlap that is not found in Mark to begin with. And so we know that there's another book that exists. And so uh, Matthew and Luke are using Mark and they're using this Q source and they're writing their gospels. And then John, and by the way, they're writing, Luke is believed to have written around 85 to 90 AD, as well as Matthew, somewhere around 85 to 90 AD. And then uh, John, I believe, um, comes around 90 to 110 AD, and he's the last of the four Gospels to be written. Um, it, it is at least of note, before we jump into the Christmas story, it is at least of note to recognize that these four Gospels outside of the Nativity, we'll get into the Nativity, and you're going to see none of that adds up either, but throughout these, their four Gospels, there are lots of discrepancies. Um, Mark tends to see the apostles as not that bright. Um, he doesn't really talk about the birth of Jesus. He may um, have gotten that part right. He probably well, if if today's any way to know, right? <laughs> if if modern apostles are any way to know how ancient apostles might have been, a little Christmas zinger there. Yeah. Um, what I was going to, I'm trying to think what I was going to say, I'm which sorry. No, that's okay. <laughs> it's, it's that, you know, they're, they're disagreeing with each other on how uh, smart and well-behaved the apostles are. They're disagreeing with each other, not only on the birth, which we'll talk about here in a minute. They disagree on um, how the events happened. For instance, I think it's Luke that's got the sermon on the, the Mount. Um, maybe Matthew it's Matthew. Sermon on the Mount. And Luke has and Luke it on has the plane. a smaller version, which is takes bits and pieces that we find in the sayings on the Sermon on the Mount. It's called the Sermon on the Plain. Yeah, right? so yeah. it happens in two different locations. Yeah. And uh, also, you know, from when Jesus was divine, Matthew um, have him kind of turning into divine, or Mark, I'm sorry, Mark has him turning into divine. Matthew and Luke have him kind of divine from birth. And then John has him being divine ever since the world ever was like, he goes back in time into the, like the pre-earth life essentially mm-hmm. and makes Jesus divine forever. And so there's all these little discrepancies, but right, I, and I was just going to say Mark, Mark uh, has Jesus become the son of God when he's baptized mm. and the voice comes That's and what says, it is. thou art my son today, today, 
have I begotten thee. That's it. So Mark at baptism, Matthew and Luke at birth, and John goes even prior to birth and says it always was. The word, you know, the word was God and with God and all that good stuff. Gotta love the word. Yep. Uh, Another couple little notes. Jesus was a Jew in Mormonism and in the rest of Christianity. We have Jesus being the first Christian. He's Scandinavian in Mormonism, isn't he? <laughs> he is. He's a little white European. He he comes from a privileged status, doesn't he? Well, yeah, and he's very good looking. At least I find him attractive. He is. We'll see a picture of the historical Jesus sometime tonight. But uh, a real picture? Well, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's a photograph. Actually, they didn't have photos back then. It's a what do they call that? A daguerreotype or something? Yeah, that's right. That was before <laughs> photographs. They had those 2,000 years ago. Uh, so Jesus was a Jew. And what I learned as I studied the historical Jesus was that Jesus was a was raising kind of rebelliousness within his own uh, faith. And when he died, his followers perceived him as pushing against the Jewish faith, but still being a Jew himself. And so the first generation of Christians, I'm saying that with air quotes, Actually, they were Jews, and the second generation would have been Jews. And we and we believe, again, based on the majority of biblical scholarship, that Jesus, his followers, wouldn't have separated themselves from the Jewish faith until about the third or fourth generation. And so we often in Mormonism and in the rest of Christianity, we frame Jesus as the first Christian and his immediate followers that are in real time following him, stepping out of the Jewish faith and starting this new religion, Christianity, and the reality is it would have been three or four generations later when these people would have um, eventually their children, their children's children would have stepped away from the religion and went with following Jesus and let go of the Jewish faith to some degree, if that makes sense. Yeah, Bart Ehrman wrote a wonderful book. It's called Early Christianities in Plurality. And the thesis of his book, and I think he might know a thing or two about what he's talking about, but his thesis is that there's this general concept that if we can get back to the original church that Jesus established, right, then there's one church and then all these things end up breaking off and becoming their own churches even very early on. But what Bart Ehrman says is that actually, according to the textual evidence we have, we can go back as far as we can, as early as we can. And even when we get to that point, as early as we can, there are already multiple forms of Christianity that are on the scene. Yeah, gotcha. Yep. Um, one other little note, the actual earliest scriptural accounts are the writings of Paul. Right. I think those, that first Thessalonians first. is considered, oh, were you going to say that? It, no, I know. I wasn't going to say the specific ones. Go ahead. Oh yeah. I think that first Thessalonians is considered to be the earliest writing that we have that's in the New Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament at this point. Yeah. So Paul writes for, he's the first person putting, uh, you know, some type of ink to paper and uh, it is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all come after him. Yes. Um, and somewhat significantly, I think 20 years or 30 years or something like that. So um, any other things here before we jump into the actual nativity itself? No, let's jump into that nativity because there's only two gospels that give us a nativity story. Isn't that right, Bill? That is right. And uh, Mark doesn't do it and mm-hmm. John doesn't do it. And it's really just Matthew and Luke who, again, writing at about the same time and seem to be unaware of each other as they write um, versions of the Gospels that don't exactly mesh the best. Um, What stands out to you? Well, we have this understanding of the Christmas story where we take all the elements of both of the uh, accounts in Matthew and Luke and we put them together. But if we were to go back and look at each account separately, 
we would see that they seem to have very little to do with each other, except for the fact they have a few common characters. One is Mary, one's Joseph, and one's Jesus, and he gets born at Bethlehem. And those are the common elements between the two different stories. Pretty much everything else is different. In other words, all the other elements are not common between the stories. Matthew has, uh, excuse me, Luke has the shepherds and seeing the angels, right? The angelic hosts. It's Matthew who has no angels or shepherds, but Matthew has the wise men and the star. That's what Matthew has. Yep. And I thought it would be fun to start off with the first thing, which is just to talk about this manger idea. And uh, I don't think this is so much a problem with the text as it is a problem with uh, how we interpret scripture. And so, you know, every year, everybody across the country and across the world puts out their nativity scenes. And, uh, you know, when you're driving around in the United States, you see them in people's front yards and people try to to have these little miniature nativity scenes in their homes. And it, it's a really big focus for a lot of Christians. And the, the idea of a manger, this idea that Jesus goes to an inn and uh, there's no room there. So then he has to go out to the barn or. It's uh, really his parents. I don't think he's made his appearance on the scene yet. Yeah, you know, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Joe, you're, thank you for correcting me. It is Joseph and Mary. They go to the inn. It's actually not, by the way, it's not his parents. It's his one parent and his stepdad. I think it was his parents originally, but they changed that. Yeah, yeah. Well, we'll get into that too. There's a whole other story with Jesus's uh, uh, biological father that we can have a conversation of that I think will be a little fresh for for this audience. So Joseph and Mary make their way to uh, Jerusalem, correct? Uh, They're Jerusalem or Bethlehem. Well, I thought he came, they came from Bethlehem. Which which account are we talking? About? Which one's the mangers in Luke, right? Oh my gosh. Okay. Yeah. I think so. No, is the manger in Luke? Yes. With the shepherds and so. the manger and everything. I think yes. so. Absolutely. You're correct. Ah, All please right. continue. So there is some type of uh, census being taken and they have to go to, I believe, don't they go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem? Uh, they, they, they do after the kid's born. Eight days later, they do that. I am screwing this up. The crowd is going to start getting frustrated with me. Let me I say know, it, I this- can't get over this comment that somebody made saying that the, I, I look like they're mental image of Scrooge. Oh, gotcha. Well, and I'm looking at him going, bah, really? well, I hope it was the morning after, you know, the morning of Christmas and not before Christmas Eve. At yeah. least. Let me say it this way. So Joseph and Mary go to the end. She is with, uh, she is about to have child. And so they're trying to find a spot where they, she can rest and relax and deliver the baby. There's no room at the end. And so they end up going back to the barn where there's a bunch of animals. And the trouble is that we take this uh, word, and I don't know how to pronounce it, but it's spelled K-A-T-A-L-U-M-A, Cataluma. Uh, Cataluma? Isn't that like an island off of California? <laughs> Cataluma, Is that where they right. were? No, no, that's not exactly where they were. It's well, a very that nice might place be. unless you're Natalie Wood. It might be unless we, you know, maybe it's in the Q gospel, Natalie Wood. <laughs> so. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. No, that's I'm okay. That's all right. Uh, no, no, it's, the issue for me is that. I'm already getting some of my facts wrong, and you're just making and you're just making it harder on me. I'm sorry. This would be a time to do your Christopher Walken impression since he was there. Yeah, no, Chris, he's old enough. <laughs> so I met I met with Natalie Wood, but go ahead. Yeah. Oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. So the the word Cataluma, which in a sense does translate to the word in, is the wrong word. It really is. Um, the quarters for the people, the, pl- the sleeping quarters 
for the people. And what the actual scripture says, and again, this is agreed upon by the scholars, is that uh, what what when Joseph and Mary show up, they're showing up to their family's home in the town. There's not any room in the sleeping quarters because everybody has is there. And so the only place left to go is in the bottom section of the home where the animals are kept. And so I'm going to add a little thing to the stream here, and we can talk about it for just a moment. Yeah, go ahead and do that. It's chapter 2, verse 7 of Luke. And she yeah. brought forth her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no room for them in the Cataluma. Yeah, there was no room in the sleeping quarters of the house. Oh. Um, and so in Jewish homes of that day, extremely common, houses were small, but they were split level. And so you had your upstairs where all of the people would eat and sleep and do their thing. And then downstairs was where all the animals were kept. And there wasn't any room there in the upstairs. And so they had to make their way to the downstairs and Mm. essentially be where the animals are. They were in steerage. Yeah. And, and not only do, you know, there are lots of uh, articles out there, lots of conversations, uh, podcasts on biblical scholarship that point this out. But we also, let me try to find the other picture here. We also end up getting, uh, I'll make that a little bigger. Here's another another image of the same kind of thing. So again, you have these small homes, they're split level. You've got the section for the animals downstairs. You've got the the, the living quarters up, upstairs. And there wasn't any room in the living quarters, so they went downstairs. But uh, what we also end up finding is we've got... Um, Dan McClellan, who is the scripture translation supervisor for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And even he is pointing this out. So even if you disagree with me as a believing Mormon, if you're listening right now and you're you're disagreeing with me, then I would suggest maybe we listen to the uh, scripture. Uh, and, and Maven, you're going to have to unmute that. It won't let me unmute it. It says that you've got that muted. And if it won't, we may have to remove it, just add it back in again. This this is the guy who's in charge of scripture translation for the church? Yeah, this is the guy who is the scripture translation supervisor. I don't know how many supervisors there are. He might be the guy, and there may be five of them. I don't know. He seems very young. And what's he doing wearing a t-shirt? I can't stand it when people are that unprofessional in their videos. Yeah, he has a lot of his TikToks that uh, have him in (laughs) t-shirts. Yeah. I, I just want to come in and say it's probably going to still be really quiet. I wasn't able to get the sound to get higher. So gotcha. hopefully so, this will work. Yep. So lean close and listen carefully. Yeah, please go ahead and play that, Maven. Hey, everybody. I had a number of people respond to my video about uh, laying Jesus in a manger uh, in the courtyard area of a house asking what this may have looked like. So here is a reconstruction uh, based on excavations of what a first century house in this region may have looked like. The elements would are generally there, even though houses all varied significantly. But there likely would have been some kind of courtyard. Portions of it may even have been open to the sky, um, but there would have been covered portions as well. The courtyard would have had a place for keeping animals. There would have been a kitchen. Uh, would have been storage, and then there would have been likely a second floor, if not just the roof that they used as a second floor. And that's where people would gather to eat and where they would sleep, and then you have windows way up high so the warm air could rise and exit out to keep the house cool. Uh, So when it says that there was no room in the guest room, it meant no room upstairs, and so Jesus and Mary in the tradition would have had to have stayed downstairs near where the animals and the storage and things were kept. Look at that. Really short and sweet. But the cool thing about this guy, and by the way, I'm just going to encourage everyone, 
go on to TikTok, find Dan McClellan and uh, follow him because on a very regular basis, he is putting out videos that deal with biblical scholarship and un, um, surprisingly to me and credit to Dan, he actually approaches these things very fairly. And I felt like as I listened to five, six, seven of his videos, I felt like this guy is a believing Latter-day Saint, but he is setting his testimony aside and he is acting as a professional scholar, giving you the scholarly synopsis and opinion as he tackles various questions on his TikTok channel. And I think you're going to see two, one of two things happen. If this guy continues to say the things he's saying, it's going to make some noise, number one. And number two is I actually expect at some point, I hope it doesn't happen. I, I pray it doesn't. I hope it doesn't happen, but that they would silence him because the things he's saying run extremely counter to the story and narrative that the church needs to hold. And I think he's doing a beautiful job of it. Uh, Maven, do you have a second video there from him? Hey, everybody. I had a number of people respond to my video about uh, laying Jesus in a manger uh, in the courtyard area of a house asking what this may have looked like. So here is a reconstruction uh, based on excavations of what a first century house in this region may have looked like. The elements would are generally there, even though houses all varied significantly. But there likely would have been some kind of courtyard. Portions of it may even have been open to the sky, um, but there would have been covered portions as well. The courtyard would have had a place for keeping animals. There would have been a kitchen. Uh, would have been storage, and then there would have been likely a second floor, if not just the roof that they used as a second floor. And that's where people would gather to eat and where they would sleep. And then you have windows way up high so the warm air could rise and exit out to keep the house cool. Uh, so when it says that there was no room in the guest room, it meant no room upstairs. And so Jesus and Mary in the tradition would have had to have stayed downstairs near where the animals and the storage and things were kept. And then I want to play this one other one just to show how interesting he is in the things that he says. And so if you'll put that third one on. Hey, everybody. Our traditional account of the nativity is a mashup of the accounts of Matthew and Luke, but they really don't fit together very well. And one of the biggest problems is timing. Matthew sets everything in the days of Herod, who died in 4 BCE. Luke starts off that way, but begins chapter 2 by saying Augustus wanted to tax the whole world. And so had Quirinius, governor of Syria... Uh, conduct a census in Judea. Now, there was a Quirinius who became governor of Syria in 6 CE, following Herod Archelaus's deposition over rule of Judea. This created a new Roman province in Judea, and Quirinius conducted the census so they could know how to tax it. This would not have involved someone from Nazareth, however. Nazareth was outside of Judea. So Luke is expanding the tax in order to rope in Nazareth. It would not have required anyone to travel, which would have been phenomenally disrupted. He's doing this. He's changing the story because he needs to account for how someone from Nazareth could have been born in Bethlehem. So I want to talk about that for a moment. I want to put us back up on the screen here uh, in a larger way. So Dan McClellan has a number of these videos on TikTok. He has about, I mean, I, I didn't count them, but you can go scroll down forever. He's, I never got to the end of what he did. I'm going to guess there's a thousand videos there. Wow. This is like the modern version of the McClellan collection. Yeah. Yeah. Except we're allowed to listen to it, right? Instead of not allowed to read it, right? Yes. Um, For now. He says a lot of things there. First off, he acknowledges that Luke and Matthew don't add up. Now he's, 
because he holds the position he does and because he's trying to approach these Q&A TikTok videos from here's a question, let me answer it from a scholarly, scholarly perspective, he never gets into Mormon theology uh, or very rarely does. And he, and he does tiptoe a little bit around that kind of stuff. But if you have Matthew and Mark who are having deep discrepancies with each other, at least on the nativity scene that he's talking about, uh, then the birth of Christ and, and not necessarily the nativity scene, but the, the whole early uh, birth story and early couple of years of Jesus's life, those have implications. If you start saying that the gospel writers contradict each other, then you have to start having a conversation about which ones should you trust, if any, and what that means. And what he also acknowledges at the end, RFM, is that Matthew and Luke are both making attempts to try to get Jesus, the figure of Jesus, to be fulfilling certain prophecies and certain statements in other places in Scripture. And so they start embellishing and altering and adapting the narrative in order to make that happen. But the moment you acknowledge that that's what's going on, you have to start having a conversation about when does that start and stop and when does the real story actually happen your thoughts on what Dan says in those videos. It's a good point that you make there. Um, the deal with uh, the two nativity accounts is that their overriding concern is getting Jesus or getting his parents to Bethlehem so that he can be born there. That's their overriding concern because everybody in their dog knew Micah 5, 2, chapter 5, verse 2, is the famous messianic prophecy saying that the, the ruler will come out of Bethlehem in Judea. So he's got to be born there, but Matthew and Luke operating apparently independently, as you say, come up with completely different stories for how it is to get him there to be born. In Luke, there's this huge census, which really doesn't make a lot of sense because uh, we don't have any records of any like worldwide census or their world, the Roman world. And it should be noted, just to add on to what you're saying, um, there are the words that I saw in the articles I read, there are copious records of the events that were taking place in that day um, in terms of government and politically. And they recorded all of the major events. And on that front, that couldn't have happened solely for the reason that nobody is mentioning it. Yeah. Yeah. You would think that it would be mentioned. It would be a big deal, but this is, I think it's called a MacGuffin where it's the driving force in the story to make it happen. And if for Luke, it's this, this census, this taxing, everybody has to go to the city of their fathers, whatever that means, by the way, I have no idea what that means. Yeah. I mean, do you have to go a thousand years back like Joseph would be doing if he's really a descendant of David? Uh, you have to go a thousand years back and you have to go to Bethlehem. And uh, does everybody have to go to their father's home city a thousand years back? It would seem like it'd be very difficult to conceptualize really happening. But they've got to get him there. Luke has to get in there so Jesus can be born in Bethlehem. That's the whole point. Matthew, on the other hand, there's no census. There's no taxing. There's no nothing like that. In fact, Jesus, uh, excuse me, Matthew's account presumes that Bethlehem is the hometown of Mary and Joseph. That's where they live. And that's why Jesus is born there. And whereas Luke has them returning back to Nazareth. You see, Luke, it's from Nazareth down to Bethlehem for Jesus to be born. Then they go back to Nazareth shortly thereafter because that's their hometown. Matthew has nothing about Nazareth beforehand. Instead, there it, the scene opens with him in Bethlehem and the wise men come 
and it's pretty clear from the, the passage that Jesus is not a little baby at the time. He's two years old by the time the wise men show up. So he's been born there. Jesus has been born in Bethlehem. He's lived there for at least two years before the wise men show up. And then it's only after that that they go into Egypt in order to escape Herod's wrath. And then when they get the all clear, then they come back and then they go to Nazareth. So they have to account for two things. The first thing is to get Jesus born in Bethlehem. The reason it's difficult is because Jesus was from Nazareth and everybody knows that Jesus is from Nazareth. He's a Nazarene as opposed to necessarily a Nazarite, but he's from Nazareth. So we've got these two things that are going on. So we have to account for why it is that he comes from Nazareth, but he's born in Bethlehem and the two gospel writers come up with completely different ways of getting him there. And as um, it's probably Professor McClellan, Dan McClellan says, um, you have a historical anomaly and historical contradiction between the two because Matthew has Jesus being born while Herod is alive. Herod the Great is alive, but Herod dies in 3 BCE, all right? So Jesus has to be born before Herod dies. So that's why a lot of scholars uh, put Jesus being born around 5 BCE. I know it sounds funny that Jesus was born five years before Jesus was born, but it's just the way it's, you know, it, it sounds funny, but it's not really, you know, it's just the way right. it is. But on the other hand, when you get to Luke and he, he mentions Quirinius, right? Quirinius being alive and he's involved and specifically says Quirinius was the governor of Syria. Well, Quirinius was a real governor of Syria, but he didn't become the governor of Syria until 6 AD or CE. So there's a nine year swing between 3 BC when Herod dies and 6 CE or AD, right? When Quirinius becomes governor. So we've got a strange, well, an impossible situation where, um, Luke has Jesus being born before 3 BCE, and Luke has him being born no earlier than 6 AD or CE. So they can't both be right together historically. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so um, one thing I wanted to jump into was we were talking about the biology of Jesus. We were talking about his parents. And I, I didn't mean any offense, by the way. I, I'm a little nervous, I guess, at the beginning of the show, trying to keep all this data together. Obviously, it's a teacher talking. <clears throat> obviously, a stepfather is still a parent to a kid, but we were talking about biological parents and this idea that Heavenly Father, you know, is the one parent. Um, and Joseph is, and by the way, if if RFM, if if your girl you're dating, the girl you're dating just told you that she became pregnant from God, mm -hmm. you know you're not the dad. And then after the birth, three uh, men show up to give gifts. That'd make you a little nervous, wouldn't it? Yeah. I don't know that I would be um, super believing that story. Joseph <laughs> no. was a better man than I am. Yeah, absolutely. But as we talk about the uh, – we were talking about this this morning as uh, I was going down the road to work and you had called me and we were talking that we actually have some stories about Jesus's earthly father, not Joseph, by the way. But do you remember the guy's name? Celsus. Or the guy's father. Well, Jesus the is the proclaimed, the, the suggested father for Jesus in the early criticism of Christianity. Right. Well, it seems a suspicious story. So at a rather late date, probably second century, a guy named Celsus writes a story, which may or may not have been his own uh, creative writing, or he may be passing along a tradition that he has heard that uh, Mary became pregnant by a Roman soldier named Pantera. P-A-N-T-E-R-A, -E I think is the name. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. 
Yep. And, That's and the story. If, yeah. And in fact, I'm going to move the thing over. We actually have some evidence that this guy actually existed. This is believed to be, uh, let me put it up on the screen here. I don't know. See if I can make this a little bigger. What is that you have? Sorry, oh, you're trying to. Uh, sorry, give me a, just. A, I'm distracting you. No, 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 no. I'm I'm distracting me. I'm not doing. Uh, so this this stone right here, um, Jesus's father Pantura, in 1859, a gravestone was found in Germany. The name on the stone was Tiberius uh, Lulius Abdus Pantera. Um, he served in the unit Cohors One Sagatorium. He had served in Judea before going to Germany. The name, uh, and again, I'm pronouncing all this stuff wrong. I'm really sorry for that. But Abdus is a is Jewish for servant of God, therefore stating he had a Jewish background. And uh, that's the full name of the person. And the account, by the way, the account written, um, it says here about 178. Uh, CE or AD, it says Celsus was the proponent of the idea. So this isn't, you know, it's a little less than 200 years after Christ. Um, Celsus was a proponent of the idea that the virgin birth story was a fiction invented by Jesus and his followers. When the truth was that he was, that Jesus was the biological product of his mother, Mary, and a Roman soldier uh, named Pantera. And I believe that Pantera is given that full title um let's see if i can find it here again uh i'm not i'm not seeing it but it was that it was all of those words that uh, i was rattling off there he was given that title and this stone has that name etched at the bottom and so some people wonder if this is the actual some sort of monument erected in honor of the soldier who early accounts criticizing Christianity proposed that was the father of Jesus himself. Do you know the dating of the stone? Um, let's see if it says that it just said it was found in the 1800s that year I gave you. Um, I, it said 1859, a gravestone was found in Germany. Uh, it says translated as Tiberius Lulius Abdus Pantera from Sidon. Age 62 years, served for 40 years, former standard bearer of the first cohort of archers lies here. Um, timeline for it uh, doesn't say. A salient point to omit, don't you think? Yeah, they don't give any kind of age of the stone itself. Okay. Um, but but at, least, at least the recognition that we believe in this entire Jesus narrative there's very little evidence, although most scholars agree, and I do as well, that there was a Joshua bar Yosef, Joshua, son of Joseph, who was a rebellious teacher uh, in early in, in that time period uh, that all these stories about Jesus are attributed to. But we really don't have any strong physical evidence, and it could be argued that on some level we might have more evidence for a proposed father of Jesus than Jesus himself. Right. And a similar thing happens at the end of the Gospels where Jesus, his body is no longer in the tomb and his followers say he came back to life and he walked out of the tomb voluntarily and appeared to different people. Whereas the people who were not his followers looked at it and said, no, you just took his body and you made up a story about it. Right, right. Um, it is interesting that in the Gospel accounts, 
um, and I think we find this in um, Mark, if I'm not mistaken, but it calls Jesus son of Mary. And the custom of the day was to call each person by their relationship to their father. So it would be Joshua bar Yosef, Joshua, son of Joseph. But in some of the gospel accounts, Jesus is referred to as Jesus, son of Mary, which would have indicated to anybody hearing that, that he was the illegitimate child, that he, that Joseph wasn't his father. And while the scriptural accounts try to attribute uh, the Holy Spirit or God being the father of Jesus, if we were to take a rational perspective, it and we would acknowledge through the criterion of embarrassment, which we'll, which we can talk about for a moment if you want, but through the criterion of embarrassment, acknowledging that Joe, that Jesus was an illegitimate child adds some credibility to the story because it's the last thing anybody really wants is to have to deal with that. True. And if you were to take two possibilities of a woman being pregnant out of wedlock, that um, she had sex with somebody other than her husband and conceived, or God came down and somehow miraculously impregnated him, her, with God's own son, then one of them probably seems more likely than the other to most people. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of a detour here. I think you would agree with this. And I know that the wording, people would have to go back into the original sources and look. But early Mormonism, uh, Brigham Young and others, made the argument through their sermons that uh, Mary became pregnant from I'm going to say Heavenly Father, but when we're talking Brigham Young, that can get complex too, right? Well, we know who Heavenly Father was for Brigham Young, yes. So, uh, But Brigham said that essentially God came down and got Mary pregnant in the same way that Mm -hmm. men get women pregnant today. Yes. Yeah. So at least with Mormonism, as you said, like Mary became miraculously pregnant, Mormonism tends to make the argument that we kind of know exactly how that happened. Nod, nod, wink, wink. Right. Literalizing it to the nth degree. Yeah. Because Mormonism often its theology is based on sex, isn't it? Yeah. And in that uh, discourse, it's the same one that's in the Journal of Discourses, uh, volume one, pages 50 and 51, where Brigham Young is actually mocking the idea that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Ghost because he's saying Jesus isn't the son of the Holy Ghost. He's the son of God. Right, right, right. Yep. And, and right. They're trying to solve one problem and, and end up creating another. Right. Yeah. Which is which is a big red flag that maybe your answer's wrong. If your solution creates more problems than it solves, it's probably not the right solution. Yeah. So by the oh, I'm sorry, ahead. I was just gonna Go I just wanted to uh concreteize this this concept is that between the two gospel accounts, there are two um important discrepancies, contradictions, I think. I mean, you could talk about the the um the shepherds and the angels and the magi the wise men and the star, and those don't contradict each other. You know, you can put them together and have everybody present at your nativity. That They are separate and distinct elements that are not shared between the two, but that doesn't make a necessary contradiction. The two contradictions are one historical between Herod the Great and Quirinius that we already covered, and the second contradiction is textual, which is how is it that Jesus is at Bethlehem? Either he lives there, and he's there for two years until the wise men show up after he's born there. Or, as in, um, I'm sorry, Matthew, or as in Luke, he lives in Nazareth and he only came down there briefly in time to get born and then go back. After eight days, he's circumcised. 
at the temple. There's the encounter with um, Simeon and Anna. And then there's actually the verse in Luke that says that right after that, they went back to Nazareth. Yeah. So you've got all of these travels that are necessary and all of these uh, time periods elapsing. And they're so different in the two accounts that you really can't reconcile them at all. Right. And so, I mean, Luke is the one that is always gone to, it seems to me, when, and somebody had raised that point or that question, why is it always the Luke version of the nativity that gets read? And it seems to be, I don't know if that goes back to uh, Charlie Brown's Christmas when Linus takes the stage at the end and gives a somewhat edited version of the Lucan story and no reference to Matthew. So it's just talking about the shepherds and the angels and on earth peace, goodwill to men and all that stuff, right? Yeah. But it doesn't talk at all about the wise men because that's in Matthew. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that whole idea of going away for two years because there's the slaughter of the innocents, anybody to and under, Jesus has to hide for a while. And all um, oh, that's just Matthew, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, no. Yep. Yeah. Um, Maven, do you have something? I wondered, yes, um, if I could just jump in. Um, and this was something that I, I didn't think of till recently. Um, it's just the, the whole story involving Mary, especially with as young as some scholars think she is, just brings in Several another issue. Several months shy of her 15th birthday, right? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, and just, again, where consent comes in, um, especially informed consent, well, you know, really understanding what's happening to her, um, God would know perfectly well how much she is able to understand of that. And um, I don't know. So it's, it's a problem for me now that was never a problem for me before. Yeah. Mary is believed to be a uh, young teenager. She's about the um, age of Juliet. Yeah. How old was Juliet? Well, nobody knows because she's kind of a fictional character, yeah. but, uh, and I don't know that there's actually any clues in the text, but generally maybe 14. Yeah. Yep. So let me read a couple things here. These are things that you've already kind of said, I think, RFM, but I want to I say them differently in a sense so that people are kind of getting the chance to kind of um, hear these data points and make sense of them in, by having more than one way told of it. So inconsistencies in the narrative. Matthew and Luke, the only Christian gospels which give us the virgin birth story, which, by the way, was interesting that here they are writing separate from each other. And they both come up with a birth story. It's it again. Mark doesn't really touch that, and so it's another evidence that we're talking about a Q gospel existing and maybe saying some things that these guys are both picking up on. Um, Matthew and Luke, the only Christian gospels which give us the virgin birth story, contain problematic details both internally and in comparison to each other. For example, it's been pointed out often that Luke's dating of the census, while Quirinius was governor of Syria in Luke is problematic. You've mentioned this. There are also difficulties when the accounts are compared to each other. The two genealogies don't uh, exactly reinforce each other, and there's a number of striking differences when compared alongside each other. Particular, as you pointed out, the migration to Egypt in Matthew chapter 2, 13 and 14, which is completely absent from Luke. In Luke's account, Mary and Joseph take Jesus home immediately to Nazareth. This is Luke Chapter 2, verse 39 and 40, with no reference to a flight in Egypt or a conflict with Herod. Right? Right. Okay. And by the way, after they get out of Egypt, does it go on there? They get, they're get they in Egypt Doesn't. until Herod dies. The angel appears to Joseph and says, hey, the coast is clear. Herod's dead. Herod's dead. So then they're heading back to their home in Bethlehem. But then they realize there's this other bad guy who took over after Herod, right? And he's not safe either. 
So then they don't go home to Bethlehem. They take a detour and they head up to Nazareth where they settle. Yeah. It, yep. Oh, I was also going to say uh, something that's interesting between Luke and Matthew. Matthew is very pro-law of Moses. And in Matthew, the angels that appear, or the one angel that appears, I can't tell if it's one angel or different angels, could be Moroni, could be Nephi, it depends. But uh, there's, th I think, three angelic visitations, but they're all to Joseph. It's the man who gets the angelic visitations. In Luke, you have the angel. There is an angel appearing, to, I think, to... Um, uh, oh, wait a second. Um, I'm so sorry. Zacharias, right? Mm -hmm. The father of John the Baptist, because we get that story first in Luke. But very famously, the angel who comes to announce the birth of Jesus does not appear to Joseph. The angel appears to Mary. Mm. Yeah. So you have these other discrepancies. You you mentioned, like, did they live in Bethlehem? Did they live in Nazareth? Where is Jesus born? Uh, according to the Matthean infancy narrative, Joseph and Mary are natives to Bethlehem. They live in their house there. Houses would be part of a patriarchal compound with as many as 50 to 100 people. No reason, you know, good reason why there's no room at the end, right? <laughs> there is no Lucan manger mentioned and definitely no stables. The author, Matthew, expects his audience to understand this, being that he writes for people equipped with culturally appropriate auxiliary background information. We Western Christians reading with spurious familiarity are blind to this. Um, next one. Did the Holy Family go to Bethlehem, go from Bethlehem to Jerusalem, and then straight back to Nazareth, as Luke tells us? Or did they reside in Bethlehem, give birth to Jesus there, live about two years there until the Magi come, then flee to Egypt, then some years after go to a place they've never been to before and take up residence there, as Matthew says. In Nazareth. Yes. Yeah, yep. And so it becomes near impossible to reconcile these accounts, which is why Dan, an employee for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, as he's being intellectually honest in his TikToks, admits that these two accounts can't be they can't be um, synchronized together. They're not, they're, it's not going to work. And so it's easy on the front end, RFM, to say, hey, these two accounts don't add up. But now what needs to happen is there needs to be a four or five hour conversation where you sit around with smart people who understand that and you start talking about what the consequences are of these deeply important stories in our faith narratives not adding up. And if you have, for instance, Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer completely disagreeing, which happens sometimes, when you have these guys disagreeing, you have to either pick to trust both or distrust both. Um, sorry, you have to pick which one to trust or to distrust both. And that has implications for how you structure your faith and to what degree you decide to believe in these stories or not. And so if if Mark doesn't give us a whole lot, Matthew and Luke are contradicting each other. John has a completely different kind of gospel than the other three. What do we do with this kind of stuff becomes this long conversation that needs to be had that nobody inside the church will touch with a 10-foot pole. No, you're right. And these types of stories, the discrepancies and sometimes even contradictions in the stories are only evident in the scriptures here in the Bible when the same story is told two different times. If it's only told once, and that's the vast majority of stories in 
the Bible. The story is only going to be told once. It's not going to be told by another author. We've got the Gospels, which is obviously an exception to that rule. There's two creation accounts. There's uh, some history of the Jews uh, in um, well Samuel and Kings versus Chronicles, because Chronicles actually does the same time period as Samuel and Kings, and you get all these discrepancies and different ways of telling the story. But unless you have two parallel stories told by different people so you can look and see the contradictions, if you've only got one story, you don't have any idea what in there is accurate or faithful to history, if that was even a concern to them back then. I know it is to us today. But you have no idea because you can't tell because there's no other story to compare it with. Yeah. And um, one of the thoughts that comes to mind is the idea that when Joseph Smith created Mormonism in the 1830s, he lived in an age of, while not the internet, there still was journalism. There still were newspapers. There still were people recording events and putting down the alternative perspective, the critical perspective. And, and even in the midst of a verifiable age of history, Mormonism, you and I both know Mormonism is full of stories that don't add up, aren't true. The historical sources say otherwise. And yet until recently, a lot of these stories were just accepted as true. Yes. So now let's go back into Jesus's day. It's an age, not of verifiable history, right? There isn't anybody until 170 years later or so, uh, and maybe in like uh, Josephus is maybe a little earlier, but you essentially have people who are not in real time contemporary to Jesus recording uh, a critical perspective. So you don't really get the pushback or the challenge. And so the question becomes, how much easier would it be in an age of unverifiable history to embellish and adapt the narrative to whatever you need it to be adapted to and to have people fall hook, line, and sinker for the story as, as the truth. And, and the answer is that it becomes exponentially easier when you don't have critics writing in real time offering a different perspective. Yes, and also before the printing press is invented by uh, Gutenberg, I think, very, very smart German, as long as we're talking about Germans in tonight's show, he... Um, before that, you can't mass produce things. They have to be laboriously copied. And so after the printing press is invented, it's much more difficult to create a different history, which is based upon another history, but to write a different history because it's so out there now. It's published. And if you try and come up with a different history, which is maybe a pseudepigraphical version of the history, that's going to be a lot more difficult to get people to believe because the original version, whatever that means, is so widely disseminated because it's able to be printed. Right, right. And and then the other point, too, along with the first one, is that you've got, again, you've got Dan uh, McClellan inside the church. For the first time I've ever heard anybody inside the church officially say, uh, Matthew and Luke don't go together. Um if you accept what he's saying and you understand the the data behind the historical Jesus and you recognize that these four uh, gospels on the birth of Jesus 
aren't agreeing with each other and these stories are contradicting each other, then the next logical question that I want to ask is as we go through the rest of these gospel accounts, once we already understand that these authors are willing to embellish and adapt and change the narratives in order to create self-fulfilling prophecies, essentially, um, I'm left to assume that that kind of process is happening through the rest. In other words, if if they start embellishing the nativity story or the birth of Jesus and get him to be in the right place at the right time and fulfilling these prophecies in the Old Testament, there's no reason to think that suddenly after they get past Jesus's birth and he's two years old, they start telling the truth. Right. And your, your suggestion about the implications of these observable contradictions is sobering. Yeah. And so once you start recognizing that the New Testament isn't trustable as historical stories about the savior of the world, and you realize that he lives in an age that isn't verifiable history, and even with what we have from his own followers, the people who believe deeply in uh, in what Jesus's life represented, just among the faithful stories, they're deeply contradicting each other. And so the natural thing for me to do is to go into the Christmas story and the rest of the life of Jesus and to take everything that happens with a grain of salt. In other words, if we don't know where he was born and how he got to where he got to, and we don't, then why do I have to believe that this person is crucified on a cross, put into a tomb, and three days later raises up having paid the price for the sins of all mankind when that story is just as, I'll use my own word here, fantastical, just as um, irrational, just as absurd based on how I believe the world to work. And so my thoughts are like the Christmas story is beautiful. I still love Jesus. I have no problem using him as an example for righteous behavior, good behavior, making good choices, being accountable, um, ideas behind human development. But what do we do if we're, if we're believers in Jesus as the Messiah, but willing to take on the biblical scholarship and, and to take seriously biblical criticism when we recognize the stories not only don't mesh, but based on how we understand the world works, these stories become absurd. What, what do we do with that? Well, that's the question. And that's where cognitive dissonance begins. Yeah. Yeah. I wanted to touch on the last point here. Uh, you mentioned the census, erroneous history about a census. A similar situation exists with the Lucan census of the whole world when, uh, and you said his name right, Curinius. Is that how you said it? Uh, it's spelled like a Cyrenius in Cyrenius. Luke, but it's a C, right? Yeah. But I think that the way it's uh, scholars understand it to be pronounced is like Q-U, Quirinius. Yeah, okay. So Quirinius, Quirinius, governor of Syria, Luke 2, 1 through 2. This census was presumably made when Herod the Great reigned over Judea and who was alive when Jesus was born and for some time after. Copious records exist from the time of Caesar Augustus. 27 BC to 14 AD. These records describe many events during that reign, particularly the most important. None of them mention anything about a worldwide census. And consider how Luke describes the census 
people must return to the home of their ancestors, consider what the empire would look like. And you, you mentioned how difficult it would be to do this, uh, what the census would look like in order to accomplish that throngs of millions migrating all over for a census. And as you pointed mm-hmm. out, do you go back to your father's land, your grandfather's land, your great grandfather's land? If I go to my, where my father was born, I go to Terre Haute, Indiana. If I go to where his dad was born, I go to Switzerland. Yeah. So where, where does it stop? As you pointed out, and yet all the historical records remain silent on it. Uh, in his own history, Augustus himself fails to mention this achievement. That's simply not credible. So again, if we take the data and think critically, think rationally, think logically, then these stories all run into uh, really deep problems. Not That doesn't take away from the fact that we have this myth and this myth has an incredible character and that incredible character has a uh, a narrative about his life that we all could learn good traits from and um, – utilized to become better, more developed human beings. Yeah, I agree. By the way, I used the term MacGuffin earlier, and I was mentioning this to, um, I think it was uh, the backyard professor earlier this morning before the sun came up. Uh, He hadn't heard the term before. It's kind of a term of art. What it means is an object or device in a movie or a book that serves merely as a trigger for the plot. Hmm. So it's what gets the action going, but otherwise it's really not important to the plot, but it's what moves things in the direction that the author wants them to move. Yeah. Do you think the church will, again, I think to some extent, maybe the answer is a mixed bag, but what are your thoughts on where you think the church will go in terms of beginning to deal with the data, the way Dan McClellan is dealing with it, which is just honestly, your thoughts on on that that juxtaposition of a church that carefully constructs its curriculum so that you only spend time reading three verses in a chapter or in a section of the DNC, and it gets to kind of um, manipulate you into thinking the story goes a certain way when in reality it stays hands off from so much of the scriptures and and fails to give you the biblical scholarship that would help you better understand what all this data is, but it would also fundamentally change Mormonism exponentially, like, like so far that we wouldn't even recognize it anymore. Right. Well, we, as I said before, we spent 95% of the time talking about 5% of the scriptures. Yeah. And that may be, conservative. So, uh, so we only talk about a certain number of scriptures and, and the fact of the matter is I've taught gospel doctrine before I've taught through all four years. I'm very familiar with the teacher's manual and what the teacher's manual is this teacher's manual is you got like 50, maybe 48, 48 lessons for the year. Cause you get two days or two Sundays off for general conference, two Sundays off for state conference, right? So there's basically 48 lessons. All 48 lessons are the same. It doesn't make any difference if you're teaching the Book of Mormon. It doesn't make a difference if you're teaching the Old Testament, the New Testament, or Doctrine and Covenants and church history. The 48 lessons remain the same, and they cover the same thing. You're going to find a lesson on tithing in all of them, believe me. And you're going to find all the same different lessons about the (laughs) same basic gospel principles, right? This is the Correlation Committee on steroids. And so what they do is we they approach the scriptures. The teaching of the scriptures is we're going to teach these 48 subjects of Mormonism and 
we actually just use whatever scriptures we are studying as a, uh, what do you say, uh, as a an excuse for talking about what, what it is we really want you to talk about. And, you know, sometimes they can do a pretty good job of link, lining up the scriptural section with the lesson, but there are times when it actually has nothing to do with the scriptural passage, and you can see they are shoehorning in the doctrine they want to be taught with what it is the scriptures are assigned for that lesson. Yeah. And I would suppose you don't expect them to ever really get on board with biblical scholarship. I mean, they really can't, can they? Can't afford no. to. No, and, and uh, it's unfortunate. But of course, biblical scholarship is, um, I mean, it's the path that leads to apostasy for so many people. Not everybody. Bart Ehrman is a classic example of someone who said, no, it's never going to affect my faith in Jesus Christ and my evangelical Christian upbringing. And, lo and, be- and he was warned. You know, don't go to this uh, this school. I can't remember which one it was right now. But, uh, you know, we get all these believers who go in there and they study to get their degree and they come out and they're not believers anymore. So it's not going to happen to me. And lo and behold, it happened to him. Yeah. It, it'll be interesting to see where Dan McClellan's at in five or 10 years, huh? It will. Can I read you a wonderful story? It's only two verses long from the book Please. of Jasher. Please. Because we're talking about Jesus. And the star in the heavens, right? The wise men, they follow the star. And there's sort of a wonderful thing that happens. The star is like a sign in the heavens. And that's their cue that a very important person has been born, and that's going to be the Messiah. So they have to go to Herod and figure out, well, where exactly is uh, Bethlehem, by the way? So they get directions. Where is he going to be born? And they go to Bethlehem, etc. But then all of a sudden, the star is not a star in the sky anymore. It's a star that sort of comes down and starts hovering above them and leading them on. And they follow this star, and then it stops above the house where Jesus lives and has been living for at least the last two years since he was born. So there's this idea of the star. Uh, The book of Jasher talks about the birth of Abraham and has a wonderful thing about a star appearing when Abraham is born as well, except it's a little bit more dramatic. So this is chapter 8, verse 1 of the book of Jasher. And it was in the night that Abram was born. Remember, he's just Abram now. He's just a little baby. He's not Abraham until a lot later. So it's the night that Abram was born that all the servants of Terah, Abram's dad, and all the wise men of Nimrod, because this is in Babylon, and his conjurers came and ate and drank in the house of Terah, and they rejoiced with him on that night because it's a big feast of celebration. Terah's just had a little baby boy. And when all the wise men... Notice that wise men and conjurers sounds like magi, right? When all the wise men and conjurers went out from the house of Terah, so they they walk outside after the meal, they lifted up their eyes toward heaven that night to look at the stars. And they saw, and behold, one very large star came from the east and ran in the heavens. So there's movement associated with the star. But not only that, And he, the star apparently, this large star, and he swallowed up the four stars from the four sides of the heavens. So there's this miraculous star that appears when Abram is born too. According to the book of Jasher, it's a common theme. When a great person is born, a great star will appear in the firmament in order to recognize that event. It's this idea that there's like a million stars up there. I mean, especially if you're out there in Babylon, and there's no, there's not a lot of whether this ambient light from street lamps and 7-Elevens and things like that. And you can really see the stars well, right? And it's beautiful. There's like a million of up, them up there. And the idea was that for every star up there, there's a person on the earth. 
And a star comes into existence when a person is born and it goes out of existence when a person dies, which is probably the root of why it is the old wives tale that when you see a falling star, it means death. It means someone has died because their star has now left the sky. Are, are you, uh, are you talking there? I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the people who are writing these gospel accounts, they only understand their own worldview and they are in no pun intended, but they are in a limited geography. Right. And they're not aware of all the other cultures and people keeping records out there. So when you propose, for instance, that like in the book of Mormon, when there's three days of darkness, mm -hmm. when you propose that, and no one else in the world in their records is recording the same thing happening. You run into a bit of a problem. The same thing happens here where you're proposing that a star in the sky is out there and it's moving and it's indicating something. But then all the other cultures that are that go back even further than these writings by thousands of years and are keeping relatively good records, there's zero mention of such a thing happening in the sky, which would have been a big deal to anybody in that time period. You know, when you don't have science, when you don't understand that this is the moon and this is the sun and here's what they're doing, here's how they work, we're actually moving around them and they're not moving around us. Like all of that becomes significant when you don't understand all of that and something happens in the heavens, it's a big deal. Those are either the gods talking to you or something strange is happening and no other cultures recording these occurrences, which means, again, almost certainly they didn't happen. And when you get to the point in... 10 times, 50 times, 300 times, you can say with confidence that almost assuredly didn't happen. A hundred things that almost assuredly didn't happen become statistically absurd if you need to make allowances for them all to have actually occurred. And, and right. that's what happens in these accounts of the scriptural record of Jesus and his life. And that's not even getting into this later life or getting into uh, other Christian stories or Mormonism or any of these other things that we get into. In fact, one other one I wanted to mention was the slaughter of the innocents mm. that was supposed to have happened in Bethlehem. Um, in essentially, yeah. And essentially that was Herod was going to kill every child two years and under. Correct. Oh yeah. He, and that's the whole deal because when did this star appears when he asked the wise men. Right. And so, to go to Bethlehem, the scholars proposed that the um, number of people that would have been in Bethlehem at this time would have been less than a thousand people. And what that means is that the number of two-year-olds or under you would have had would have been like a half dozen or less. And so even if this event occurred, and there is no record of this event occurring in any sort of historical source, uh, even if this event occurred, uh, I was going to put those up on the screen Um Maven, there's there's a bunch of nativity scenes that are kind of interesting. And so as we're talking, she can throw a few of those up. Um, even if that event occurred, it almost assuredly didn't because nobody records it. It would have been, again, not that not that we should minimize the death of a few babies, right? But it it isn't to the it isn't to the um amount that these stories seem to portray to us that they are. There's one with uh, former President Trump, and uh, uh, looks like we've got some music stars. Uh, Prince Harry, yeah, Prince Harry from England over there, and uh, you've he's got a ginger. 
you still got a few a few animals too. So kind of cool. Yeah, can I say a couple things here? The Please. books that I was using. Oh, go ahead and show all those. I will say that there was seemed to be a fight going on amongst the different comments that I saw about, about the new star, the star being born was Lady Gaga, and somebody says, No, it was Barbara Streisand. Well, oh, you're okay. both wrong. It was actually Judy Garland. Darling. Yeah. Yes, it was Judy Garland was the star who was born. And the star was somewhere over the rainbow, right? Right. Well, you know, there's three versions of A Star is Born. First one was with Judy Garland. The second was with Barbara Streisand. And the most recent one was with Lady Gaga. Okay. Look so, at that. Oh, I, I love like all that. these pictures. These are great. And I love the Universal Monster. So that one is my favorite right there. Yeah. And I wanted to show, you know, the other issue we run into is this is actually the historical Jesus uh, – drawn you know obviously we take what we know about the jewish culture the way people kept themselves in terms of hair lengths uh, we take skin color and this is a much closer image of what jesus would look like and yet in mormonism as you pointed out earlier he's he's a white european dude and even if i see if i can find a better one here yeah where was it right here so that guy's pretty handsome i mean he's not a bad looking dude um, but this would be what Je- a, a more appropriate image of what Jesus would look like, and yet most of Christianity has very much um, turned Jesus into a European. In fact, Mormonism uh, has, because of its rules at BYU, has forced Jesus to shave his beard, put a suit and a tie on, and cut his hair length. He doesn't fit the grooming standards. You're not allowed to have piercings at BYU either. And that would get Jesus, Jesus in some trouble too. Mm. Um, I don't think Jesus meets any of the grooming standards at BYU. And so there's corporate Jesus. But if, if we're going to take Christ seriously and we're going to portray him more accurately, we're probably going to have to change his appearance a little bit too, aren't we? Uh, probably, but once again, this is a classic example of how it is that people tend to create God in their own image, literally. Yeah, literally. Yeah. Um, any other things in your notes you want to touch on with the early stories of Jesus? Because I was quoting for the book of Jasher from this book right there, right? Traditions. Okay. Tra- hey, there it is. Traditions about the early life of Abraham. I think it's like 21 years old now. And let me just see here if I can get those names up there. Compiled and edited by John H. Wetness, who has since passed. Rest his soul. Who's a good guy. Brian M. Halglid. I've heard of him before. Uh, I don't know if he's still a believer in the um, Book of Abraham. And John Gee. John Gee is also on there. So I wanted to give him a special shout out and a Merry Christmas to John Gee and Carrie Mulestein, his flying monkey. John Gee still believes there's a missing scroll out there somewhere. Yes, apparently. (laughs) Anything else in your notes on uh, the early life of Jesus? No, that's it. Cool. Um, Then what I'm going to do is I'll put the number up on the screen and... uh, uh, Maven, if you're if you're hearing me, I went ahead and signed into the call stuff. This may be a little tricky. I don't have my normal equipment with me today, so I'm just going to hold the phone uh, on speaker and up uh, by my ear. And so the person, people calling, should still be able to hear you, and you should still be able to hear them. But it's just going to be a little backwards today. Um, after the first of the year, I'll be home on Wednesdays, and we'll be able to be pretty consistent on what my backdrop looks like. I won't be in the cargo bay here at the warehouse and uh, I'll be able to kind of t- uh, take care of the phone calls the right way. So, uh, but anyway, I am in the call studio, Maven, if you want to start uh, getting ready to screen some calls and I'll put the, the phone number up. 
which is, of course, it's the Victory for Satan segment, uh, 662 Mormons, or 662-667, Mark of the Bee, 666, and then finish with a 7 at the end. It's my favorite number. I just got the CD in the mail today, and so uh, I had it set up there, and I don't know that it was very visible, but it's uh, Celtic music, violin, or actually fiddle, sorry. I think they fiddle up there in Celtland. But it looks like a violin to me. Anyway, it's going to have some wonderful music, and I look forward to listening to it. Gotcha. Gotcha. And you know uh, who you are. Okay, that person, yes. Um, it is It is a fun time of year. Like I, I know I'm being kind of hard on this Christmas story, um, but it, <sighs> Christmas has made up a huge part of my good memories of childhood. It's I have some fantastic memories as an adult with my own children, my wife. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think religion's ability to give us these myth stories and to, um, use them as catalyst to help us sense our own morality and to be better human beings. I think to some degree that works. Now there's a lot of unhealthiness, a lot of bad mechanisms. There's a lot of, uh, stagnating you and keeping you from growing too, but Christmas has a, I don't know. Christmas has a warm, soft place in my heart too. It is. It, it endures. It survives. It. It 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 uh, it, it captures us. And by the way, yeah. I think I need to apologize to Carrie Mulestein because that was very nice of me to say, especially at Christmas time. These John Geese flying monkey. I think that was beneath me. I think I should probably rephrase that and say that Carrie Mulestein is John Geese crummy little toady. Okay, I don't know if that's an improvement. <laughs> you get the reference though? No, I don't, but it doesn't okay. sound nice. <laughs> well, I'll leave it to the audience to figure it out. I'm sure they're I'm, posting it right now. Yeah, there will be people there. Um, how, is, how has Christmas changed for you, RFM, since you now see these stories more through a lens of scholarship and rational thinking? Wow, that's an interesting question. Well, I will tell you that I figured out, uh, by the way, children, leave the room. Parents, get your kids out of the room right now. I'll give you three seconds, three, two, one. When I found out that Santa Claus was questionable, when I was 12, right? Huge disappointment. And every year I wanted to have that Christmas excitement and spirit that I felt as a kid. And I was disappointed every year when it didn't come and it didn't come and it didn't come. Then I joined the LDS church when I'm 18. I figured that Christmas, I'm going to have it again. I don't have it. I'm disappointed once more. And I finally found out that if I could just make peace with Christmas and let Christmas do its own thing and I'll do my own thing and we don't have to fight. <laughs> we don't have to fight about it, but I can just sort of accept whatever it is Christmas wants to give to me each year. And if it doesn't want to give anything, that's fine. I am okay with that. Uh, and the more I let it go and try not to force it, the more I'm able to feel uh, the, the Christmas spirit, not like when I was a kid, but I mean, that's not going to happen, but I'm able to feel more uh, connection with people, more of the holiday spirit, and I enjoy Christmas now more than, and that I'm being actually quite serious. I enjoy Christmas time now more than when I believe the scriptural accounts of the birth of Jesus. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I'm with you. Um, there's some really cool things that happen among us collectively in our humanity around this time of year. People are a little nicer. Some people are, 
trampling over others to make the good, you know, the good Friday sale or whatever. But, um, but there also is a greater degree of human acceptance and love and compassion this time of year as well. And some of those things are beautiful. We've got our first caller. It's going to be uh, the backyard professor. I'm going to add him in right now. Uh, Backyard professor. Is that you? Good evening, my friends. How are we all? Doing good. Let me see if I can turn that up a little bit. Yeah. Are you in your bathroom or something? Are you on no, the John Backyard Professor? I think it's just my equipment, my friends. So uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, you want to? Go ahead and t- tell us what you Would you like got. me to talk loud? Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to tell you two that regardless of what stupid history literalism you are talking about, Jesus loves the both of you, especially <laughs> you, RFM, you heathen. <laughs> yeah, just don't flush while you're I on the air, that okay? On the air, man. That's awesome, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. And by the way, it was my dear friend RFM who called me this morning before the sun rose. So he can't blame me when it's him. I object. Other yeah. than that, the defense rests, and I love you guys, and I hope you have a fabulous holidays. Perfect. Thank, Thank you, you my so friend. much. Backyard Professor is the only person foolish enough to pick up the phone when I call him before the sun is up. But I appreciate it. There we go. Uh, second caller, we've got Nicola back this week. Um, Nick, Nicola, you're on the air. Okay. Hi. Yeah. Thoughts on the Christmas story? Uh, okay. This, this, I, I understand all your, you were saying. I, I don't know. I'm going to pause, pause this because I can hear... Anyway, I'm just. Uh, Nicola, can you hang on a second? I think we're having a technical difficulty. Hey, Nicola, can you pause? Can you make that sound in your background disappear? Hello. That was coming from. Did you hang up on Nicola? No, Nicola, you there? People go to hell when they hang up on Nicola. I'll try you what. I'm going to hit the button again. See, Nicola, go ahead. Go ahead and try again. Yep. Okay, let's try again. Basically, history in itself is is absolutely messy. And I agree with everything you're saying. And the only thing I'd say is I heard about the Gospel of Thomas when I was going through all of this stuff. But, like, Humpty Dumpty is a flipping cannon. And I didn't realize that it was a cannon until I went to a museum in Woolwich, and there I am standing face-to-face with Humpty Dumpty, and it's basically the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, and uh, basically it fell off the wall because the um, the Roundheads basically uh, blew it off the wall, and it fell, and it, and it broke. The gun broke. And that's the history, but nobody knows the history of Humpty Dumpty, and I never would have done if I hadn't have gone to... I, don't, I think the museum's shut down now, but it's firepower in Woolwich. If I hadn't gone and seen that, I don't know if it was a Rex cut or it was a, a real a, a real Humpty Dumpty uh, cannon or what it was. But history in itself is just, just so mis- is so so messy, and we haven't got any first count first people accounts, so that makes it even more messy. But I mean, how the heck did it turn into an egg? So yeah, I I don't I don't. Know. I don't know, Nicola, but you're right. Like none of history. George Washington wasn't uh, having a trouble with his honesty and uh, cutting down cherry trees either. So 
essentially once we yeah. recognize that all of it is myth um, and very little of our history is uh, contextualized with the actual humanity of that human being who participated in that event, uh, it all becomes a mess, doesn't it? Yeah. All yeah. right. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Yep. Have a great Thanks, day. Thanks, Nicola. Bye-bye. Is this what our technology has come to on the show, Bill? I'm telling you right now, I promise it'll be better next week, but this is, <laughs> I didn't want to carry all my equipment into the office this morning. And I, I forgot all about thinking through the phone calls and uh, everything else. I had a way around to, to solve the problem, but the phone calls I didn't. And so I got to the phone call section and uh, I, I froze up a little bit and uh, knew that that wasn't going to work out as well, but we'll, we'll carry on anyway. Um, We've got another caller. I think she's right now getting some information from him. Um, any other thoughts here on uh, the Christmas story? Anything else that kind of strikes you? Oh, my gosh. I think I've kind of exhausted myself, if not the audience, in uh, what I was talking about. But, um, yeah, we've got a great Christmas story. We've got God being born as a human being. He's sort of a demigod. Yeah. And it's kind of when you say demigod, like Hercules and other people in ancient mythology who have a mortal as one parent and a God as another, and they have superpowers, but they're not quite gods, but they're not mortals. They're in between. And then you start putting that against the narrative of Jesus. Um, and you start seeing him sort of fitting into the other, the other myths as if he's patterned after some of those myths to make it more acceptable and more relatable to people. Because this is their worldview. They can't see it through any other view than their worldview any, any more than I can see through a view different than my worldview. I can try to, but I don't know that I'm successful. But yeah, Jesus is a demigod. And I think that the backyard professor uh, and others have mentioned how he seems to follow very closely a type of Dionysius or Dionysus being um, a, a mythical uh, being. Uh, dying and resurrecting God, I believe, and one who gets sacrificed into bloody pieces and then is restored. So there's a lot of parallels that are going on there if we know the history of the mythology. Yeah, you make a great point, which is, and there's another side of that coin too. So the first one is that there are lots of stories before Jesus's story about other people who have the similar traits, similar narrative stories, similar things going on that are part of the Jesus narrative. And so there's the argument that much of the Jesus narrative, at least the 20,000 foot view is borrowed from history and other stories that had come before. The other side of the coin that I was mentioning was that there are lots of Messiah figures prior to Jesus in the hundred years leading up to Jesus I think uh, biblical scholarship records somewhere around a dozen well-known Messiah figures who are these humans, they're born, and somewhere along the way, they start claiming that they are the Messiah because the Old Testament has set up the Jewish faith to have a Messiah come and save them. And so part of you and I were talking about this this morning, part of the effort to take uh, Jesus of Nazareth and adapt these stories and embellish them so that there are all these fulfilled prophecies is an effort on the part of the authors to elevate Jesus above all these other Messiah figures so that he can have some credibility and some lasting power. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's in Jesus Christ Superstar. Is it? It's one of the Romans. Uh, I can't remember which one it is. Is that true? I think it is because he's talking to Ananias or Caiaphas, Ananias or Caiaphas, and saying, "You Jews breed messiahs by the sackful." They have tons of messiahs. And just as an example, I mean, how many freaking ones mighty and strong is Mormonism going to produce? We, we have them by the sackful yeah. because of one passage in the Doctrine and Covenants that has nothing to do with anything other than Joseph Smith going down to Missouri and setting Edward Partridge uh, right in the way he's handling things as the bishop down there. I'm going from memory now. I hope I've got this right. That's all it's talking about. It's obviously self-referential. If Joseph Smith is writing it, and if God's authoring it, then he's talking about Joseph Smith and calling him the one mighty and strong to set things in order in Missouri, right? But this has led to people talking about uh, they are the ones mighty and strong. And it's always somebody who rises up in order to set things in order for the LDS church. The LDS church is out of the way. And now somebody has to rise up in order to set it in order. And almost invariably, they will identify themselves or have other people identify them as this prophesied one mighty and strong. So we see the same kind of thing in Mormonism, I think. Yeah. We'll go to our last call for the night. This is Allison. Uh, Allison, you're on Mormonism Live with RFM and Bill Real. What's your thoughts? Hey, guys. Happy winter solstice. Happy winter solstice. Thank you. Um, Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, Joseph Smith was folk magic. He was totally a pagan in some ways and we're all from northern europe and we know that yeah and the sun is coming back now mm-hmm. so i want to wish you guys who i love i love listening to you and yes you're right all of us out here we see you we feel like a connection to you like no belief and yes it is the solstice and the sun is coming back Happy solstice. Thank you. Happy solstice to you, too. Thank you so much. And I've got to tell you, I'm getting a little bit warm here with the scarf because I'm actually not out in the elements. But I would rather be no place at this Christmas time other than here with Bill and everybody who's watching doing this show. Yeah. Yep. We've got one more week left for the year. And uh, and then the show uh, wraps up uh, 2021. And we head off into 2022. And... uh, I would just, you know, like to say thank you, RFM, for joining me in this endeavor to do this show. Uh, I reached out to you a little over a year ago and said, uh, "What do you think about doing a live call-in show?" And you said, "Let's do it." And we, I don't know, maybe a week later, two weeks later, recorded episode number one live, and uh, it has been a fun ever se- ever since. And I just want to wish you a merry Christmas, my friend. Well, thank you. Merry Christmas to you, Bill. You are one of the the nicest people I know one of the most knowledgeable and articulate people I know. And I am honored to count you as a friend. Not tonight's episode, my friend. I stammered all over the place, but thank you for picking me up and saving me like you always do. (laughs) Well, folks, Merry Christmas to each of you. And we appreciate each of you tuning in and, and uh, it's been a fun year and uh, I'm excited about 2022. It's going to, it's going to be a lot of fun as well. Absolutely. Merry Christmas, everybody. God bless us. Everyone.